Please rise. Court is now in session. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh law firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The defense strenuously objects. You would! Call the first witness. Hello, greetings, and welcome to I Strenuously Object. I wish I had the ability to do some sort of convincing, like, uh, robot voice or something for our intro here. Now do the robot voice. Meet more sharp robot. That's a terrible robot voice. Yep. Uh, that's not not really in the cards for me here, but we are going to talk about a subject that uh, that would fit in with that sort of impression where I'm able to do it, which is, uh, well, what role is AI going to have in our legal future, and uh, are we still going to have jobs? Here to join me today is uh, my partner in crime. It's Noah Fardo. And of course, as always, we are joined by uh, podcast producer Mike, who I'm sure will find the right time to pepper us with some questions and, and get involved in this today. I have some opinions, too. <laughs> Don't we all? And of course, that's what you come here for. We talk about half-baked opinions. That is very much on offer today. We are all well above our depth when it comes to our technical understanding of what exactly AI is and what exactly AI can do. Much more in our depth talking about the way it can interface with and fit into a role into legal proceedings and the legal process. So with that in mind, what I'd like to do first is just ask uh, ask you, Noah, quickly. You've been kind of exploring this stuff, you know, in recent weeks, what exactly right now can AI do to help a lawyer or to be involved in a legal case? Yeah, I mean, not that it's trustworthy yet, right? Everybody's heard the classic example of AI spitting out a case uh, that did not exist with a judge that had never heard about the case. So right now, I don't know that it's doing very much for lawyers yet, but I'm pretty confident in the next few years that it's going to keep growing on itself. What I think it does best is, and what I think it will do best, is accumul accumulate a lot of information and break it down very simply, whether it be a complicated fact pattern or exhaustive medical records. I think it's beginning the process of being able to break down information. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Now let's pause and talk about the specific example you gave first, because while you said we've all heard about and we all know this situation where the, the AI spit out a fake case, I'm not sure everyone's heard that. And even among the people who've heard that, the non-lawyers may not understand exactly what you mean when, what's it mean to spit out a fake case? So first of all, I'm assuming that the document in question was some sort of legal brief or filing where you're, where you're providing authority to the judge in support of your argument or your position. Can you just tell us kind of how those work generally? Well, you know, for the past, what, 30 years, if you needed to research a case, you would rely primarily on Westlaw or Lexis. Right? Those are the kings of the legal research community. There are some others. If you want to throw us a sponsorship out there, guys, we will, uh, we will happily accept the sponsorship for our podcast of Your Legal Research Engine. But they refer to these re legal research companies as primitive AI. Uh, they tell you whether a, a what is the law? You know, they always say that physics and math stay pretty constant over the years, but the law can change and legal opinions can change. But I guess what happened in this case is somebody was doing some legal research similar to what you would do on a basic Google search, but they were asking it to go farther. 
They were asking you to not only understand the law, but then to make arguments with what the existing law is. And from what I understand, the, the AI version made something up that was coherent and believable, but just did not exist. Yeah. So to strip way, way back for the non-lawyers in our audience here, when you're making an argument to the court, for example, making an argument about what sorts of events toll the statute of limitations, right? What can happen to me in my life or about my case that makes the statute of limitations longer than two years in a particular case? You don't just submit written argument to the court or verbal argument to the court where you're stating this is what the law is. Um, you are also doing research, finding cases that support your position, uh, and then providing citations and sometimes quotations from those cases to the court. So the court can go find the precedent from 25 years ago that you're saying supports your position. A lot of us don't have them anymore, right? But you've seen in commercials or TV or whatever, the giant wall of books behind a lawyer where they all look exactly the same. Those are called case reporters, right? This all goes back to the Frank Wabanger case of 78. How about that? I looked something up. These books behind me don't just make the office look good. They're filled with useful legal tidbits, just like that. And the companies here, uh, some of which ended up being the companies that are now involved in online legal research, th their old business model was essentially they took all of the published opinions that judges made in all the cases in the state appellate courts and in the federal courts, and they kind of bound them together into volumes. So you had physical books that contained all of those decisions. And then indexes and search mechanisms came in place so that you could go through these, you know, shelves and shelves and shelves of reporters to try to find cases that may or may not be relevant to the particular issue you're researching. And legal research operated that way until probably, what, 30 years ago, you figure, before really these companies with the advent of the internet and its widespread adoption started coming up with internet research tools where now most lawyers, when they do a search, they don't pick up a physical book. Um, they're not looking through the indexes and the old search functions. When I was in law school, they still taught a little bit of how to do that. I don't know if they even bother to do that anymore um, because no one uses it, right? Instead, you use whether it's Lexis, whether it's Westlaw, and you kind of, most of it now runs on natural search functions just like you're Googling, except what you start coming up with is other cases and statutes and things like that that you then have to read to see, is this actually the case I want, the statute I want? Do I have to ask different questions to get better results? It is the kind of searching that the rest of us are used to, but with kind of a specialized understanding of, of what you're looking for in the law. One could say, and, and certainly to the extent it's not in the coming years, those functions are going to be hugely driven by AI. In the same way that Google's starting to make this change and all of these kind of the algorithms that are involved in your search results, they're getting AI kind of injected into them and replacing elements of them in the hopes that it gives better results in the future. Because it turns out the more and more computing power you have, the easier, well, not easier, but the more sense it makes to have a machine kind of write the algorithm itself on the fly rather than have a strict set of rules in place written by human coders that are then applied to a set of data to produce your results. That change is coming to all of us um, because we're all using these companies and all these companies are going to move to AI. But anyway, <laughs> slight digression, but, but on point digression. So the case in question or the situation in question you're talking about, someone basically had generative AI, right? Like chat GPT or that kind of thing, write a legal brief for them and submit it to the court. And part of the problem with this quote unquote generative AI is that it's able to create stuff, make up stuff. 
it's why it's a threat to a lot of people in creative industries, right? Because now you've got machines that can make music, make art. They still have some problems, right? They still land in the uncanny valley sometimes. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Producer Mike. Well, as a sometime graphic designer, I did try some of the AI graphic design programs. And you've seen some of the spectacular art that's been produced from them. I'm telling you right now, it's not easy to do. I came up with nothing usable. It was very wonky and it, your inputs have to be very specific. So at this time, there's still a lot of control and creativity from the person doing the inputting the, the suggestions as to what you get out. My favorite that I saw, because people, people tended to post either the spectacular successes or the spectacular failures in this regard, and the failures were delightfully funny. Um, and are the imaging version of making up a case and providing it to the court, right? So someone asked this AI to generate a picture of salmon swimming upstream. And what it showed was like a flowing body of water and then salmon fillets, like you see in the grocery store, hopping up out of that water and moving back upstream. It's a really odd visual image. You can see how the AI would get there. That's salmon. And it's swimming upstream. Well, yeah, but that's not the kind of salmon you would mean in this question. And that's the that's the level of understanding the AI is not at yet, right? The AI can produce for you an image that is salmon swimming upstream, but every once in a while, it's giving you pink salmon fillets um, as that image. And and to me, that that sort of mistake is, you know, not only does it betray the non-human elements here, but it shows the the weakness here of figuring out what a what an appropriate creative task is and what isn't by not understanding context and subtlety. My best analogy is in the world of AI voiceover, uh, which we've all heard. It's, it's being used ubiquitously now. And now, obviously, I have a bias against it because I do voiceover for a living sometimes. I think we can judge where AI is at right now by listening to AI-generated voiceover. It's, it's pretty amazing what it can do. I mean, it's somewhat human, but it's also instantly recognizable as not being human. And it gets a lot of inflections wrong. I mean, you can tell it really doesn't understand what it's saying. But you know how it is the tech world never stops evolving. So, lawyers, keep your eyes peeled for the latest advancements that match your needs in practice areas. There you have it, a glimpse into the world of AI tools for legal professionals. I mean, that's a really bad read. No self-respecting voiceover artist would say it like that, and few humans I know would say it like that. There you have it, a glimpse into the world of AI tools for legal professionals. Now, I get it that this would be easy and cheap to use, and is easy and cheap to use for things like explainer videos or a TikTok video, and few people would care. But are filmmakers going to be using this for movie voiceovers? I don't think so. And I can tell you, that at this time, Audible.com absolutely will not take machine-generated audio for their books, and rightfully so. So I'm wondering if this level of almost but not quite human is where the AI tools for lawyers are presently as well in, in your experience. Right. It's, in, it's still in its infancy to some degree, Mike, right, when it's not able to recognize inflections. The AI that exists now, and I, and I think it makes sense to think about it in terms of, to the limited extent, I understand the difference between predictive AI and generative AI, right? Uh, predictive AI is really good at just mashing through giant stacks of data, even better than, than kind of man-made algorithms are initially, um, and kind of accurately 
like putting that data together and kind of predicting results and outcomes based on that. Um, it's human taught. Um, there are going to be areas where already that thing can outperform humans, right? What things do humans not do particularly well at? Uh, well, we, we forget things that we once knew. We're only able to process a certain amount of information so quickly, especially of a particular kind of information, like complex data analytics, all that stuff we've had to find ways to offload onto machines anyway. In many regards, this is just a better way of offloading it onto a machine, right? Instead of entering everything into an Excel spreadsheet and then trying to do your analysis from there, just just skip that middle process and let the machine figure out what it thinks is the best way to analyze it and come back with the results. You can see in certain legal fields already where it makes sense to use a lot of AI for that. If I'm doing a product's liability case, right, where there's a lot of engineering information to go through, uh, or I can imagine a world where pretty quickly, um, as someone who's not in the field trying to actually write a new medical journal article or something like that, being able to use AI to go through the vast reams of material already out there on existing um, medical journal articles and provide me what it thinks the, you know, the consensus opinion is, where the outliers are. Those are things that AI is going to be able to do very well. It's going to be able to help us with research. It's going to be able to help us manage troves of data. The other thing it's going to be able to do really well is is kind of a, a last review. Ima imagine a uh, spell check on steroids, right? We see this in contract drafting all the time. You draft a 35-page contract, and then it has uh, exhibits attached to it, and those contracts are five pages long. And just making sure that everything is reconciled with each other, that the terms and definitions that are used in one place are the same as another, and the, the ways in which the contract reverse to other parts of the contract make sense. The machines are going to be better at that level of kind of detail-oriented work than we are as people. Humans are still going to have to interact with it at this point. But those are the places where if I'm doing contract review or highly technical analysis of, of discovery, you know, AI is going to gobble up a lot of that work. Maybe not in two years, maybe in 15 or 20 years, but it's coming. And these are the things that traditionally a lot of kind of first year associates would have assigned to them. You know, there are lawyers whose whose jobs are at stake in 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 taking some of that up. But it should allow that process to be done more efficiently, more economically, you know, just better in a lot of ways. Although it's also going to really create a problem at like the entry point level uh, of the legal profession, uh, getting new lawyers, you know, jobs that pay well and are productive. One of the things that writers, artists, and musicians are currently concerned about is that generative AI is pulling from existing works to create quote unquote, new work, and that it is essentially stealing from creative artists, which brings up all sorts of copyright and plagiarism issues. And I would assume that that is the same issue for the legal profession, and that it would be similar. Would you agree? Well, I, I mean, the part of the problem is we don't know, right? Uh, the mechanism that these generative AIs are using to create are kind of behind a black box, where even the developers don't really know like how it gets from input to output at this point. That is part of what makes it powerful. It's also part of what makes it confusing. Um, there's some really intricate philosophical questions with respect to, with respect to plagiarism versus synthesis. Uh, all of us learn by taking in information from other sources uh, and kind of trying to synthesize them as best we can um, into something new and different. The AI in some sense is trying to do that too. It's just, it's not that 
great at it yet, so the seams are visible, right? If you're obviously building some sort of Frankenstein's monster where the, you know, the right arm comes from Bach and the left leg comes from Miley Cyrus, but you can see that, um, then all of a sudden you're kind of like, well, this is just a, you know, this is a, this is a plagiarism machine, not an actual intelligence. As it develops more, it will hide that a little better. And then it becomes an interesting philosophical question, I think, as to is the thing it's doing capable of being called creation meaningfully, or is it just a thing that, you know, looks like creation from the outside because we don't know how it got there and it looks new to us? I, I think that hinges on my next question, Noah. We were talking a little bit about what stuff we think AI can do uh, and will be able to do in the relatively near future that'll that lawyers can use as a tool and using it to deal with things like medical records and medical data and medical journals or engineering information and that kind of data seems like the obvious place and then helping in legal research not actually writing your briefs that's different but finding you cases finding you authorities going through you know all the cases in other jurisdictions for things that might be persuasive those all seem like because they're fundamentally about the quick processing of a giant trove of data things that lend itself really well to what AI can do. But I think in that sense, it's more akin to predictive AI than the, the, the generative AI, the, the chat GPT, the creative work that's occupied our imaginations and stoked our fears over the last couple months here in particular. Uh, I guess my question, Noah, is what parts of our profession, what parts of the legal job can't AI do? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you think about AI, the, you know, the, the key word is intelligence. Everything you said about accessing a lot of data and finding cases. I mean, that's simply what Google does to some extent right now, um, researching a lot of issues. But the intelligence part of it, you know, can AI make better closing arguments? Can it make better persuasive arguments based upon the data it has? Um, I think it will be able to. I could be wrong. And in my, you know, my first take was, no, it can't emulate the emotion um, it doesn't can't have the gut instincts in a courtroom per se, based upon what it's visualizing and appearances or reactions to what has been said already. But I mean, as the intelligence part, I see it as being able to make better arguments than most lawyers. What's your thoughts? I think you're wrong, and I hope you're wrong. Um, the last thing in the world I want is to land in a place where literally the only thing we as lawyers can do better is show up in person because the AI hasn't figured out how to physically instantiate itself in a body yet. Well, it's interesting, right? I'm, I'm sure, and I don't know a lot of it, but there's a lot of kind of scholarship about rhetoric. And the AI can probably absorb all that and follow it to a T. And uh, that may lead to things that are more persuasive than I'm giving it credit for. But fundamentally, you know, it's knowledge versus wisdom and understanding, right? The AI can, can outpace us in knowledge because it has more capacity for that. Um, wisdom understanding requires both different intellectual muscles that the the AI isn't built to have, it can only kind of emulate. And the same thing with emotions, right? It's hard for the AI to be expected to predict what the emotional reaction is going to be uh, to some of what it says. And the better it gets at predicting that, the more likely it's going to engage in falsehood to manipulate to get there, um, both of which are problems, right? Being persuasive while also being accurate are going to work at cross purposes. We've seen this in the political discourse, right? Uh, it turns out lies can be really persuasive. My, my nine-year-old, she's just figuring out about lying. It's hard to roll that one back because lying is pretty amazingly useful. 
in life. So how do you tell a kid not to use a thing that just solves every possible problem? Like magic. Uh, we live in a world where people get up in arms and emotionally react to things that are sometimes AI generated, sometimes human generated, but then put out to them on AI algorithms. Um, and it serves to um, just intensify the emotional reaction to to world and news events and so on. Um, and it's, you know, it has, you know, despite its problems, replaced newspapers in a lot of ways and traditional news sources in a lot of ways. Uh, the AI has taken some of that over in a, in a way that's bad for society. I suspect if AI starts being good enough at argument that you're going to find some of the same problems in the world of litigation, that, you know, it's going to be winning arguments with falsehoods and sleights of hand. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to prove to you not only that Freddie Quimby is guilty, but that he is also innocent of not being guilty. And also just being able to rely on it, right? So Right now, a judge relies on the lawyers and the professional responsibilities of those lawyers that when the lawyer submits a brief and that brief has case sites and quotations and claims about what the facts are, that the lawyer is trying to be persuasive, but is fundamentally not just making stuff up and lying to the court because the lawyer's job depends on it not making stuff up and, rely and lying to the court. Uh, you will get your license suspended. You will get disbarred. It becomes bad times for the lawyer. So the... That means when the judge reads your brief, the judge can basically take it at face value without having to wonder, you know, did you make up cases to get here? Um, and this is why a lot of courts, a lot of judges are already putting rules in place where you're literally required as an ethical responsibility as a lawyer to disclose if you used any AI and if so, for what parts of your brief, your argument, your work, so that the court itself knows that you've done this and it doesn't assume that the AI is operating within the bounds of professional responsibility. How easy would it have been in the famous case we're talking about of the uh, lawyer who used the AI brief that had false information in it? How easy would it have been for him to find that false information, to double check what he had been given? Would it have been as difficult as going ahead and writing the thing in the first place? No, it wouldn't have been, especially if it's just a literal case that doesn't exist, right? In fact, there's already software. It's just a question of getting the two AIs or the two different computer programs to work together, right? But legal cases are cited with a particular format, the design of which, if I say, hey, I am citing to, you know, Smith v. Johnson, which can be found at 334A2D15, uh, and that's a superior court decision from 2017, right? And, and, that stuff is in your citation, in your case. And the whole design of that is to cite it in a way that either if you're talking about those old books or if you're talking about what they actually use, which is Lexis or Westlaw or whatever, you just punch in, you know, 233A2D17, enter, and that case pops up. And if you enter it and the case doesn't exist, there's nothing there or a different case shows up because you've now cited to the middle of some other opinion. So just checking that a case exists is like, a dozen keystrokes. It's simple. You know, checking if a quote is a misquote is harder because you have to go find whether or not the language that's in there, but only marginally harder. It's a little more time consuming. Where it gets even trickier is you will often cite to a case in support of your proposition where you don't quote the case as such. You, you do a synthesis of the case and state what its holding is. Well, now it gets a little trickier to tell if the case exists, whether that holding is made up. You would have to actually read the case and understand the case well enough to figure out if what you said the case said 
not in a direct quote, but in a synthetic way, is in fact what the case says. That's where it gets a little harder for someone who's fact-checking to check the accuracy. Um, and that's where I think part of the concern about what the AI will eventually be able to do. This AI did a thing that got caught quite easily. It just threw together two names with a V in between and some numbers uh, because it knew it needed something to support the thing it just said. Um, but that thing didn't exist. Once that error works its way out of the system, there will still be a problem, which will be AI intentionally, in the extent you can ascribe attention to it, misrepresenting the contents of a case because it says what it wants it to say to make its argument. I was thinking on that case, Bill, couldn't the judge or court have put what was written back into AI and asked, is this accurate? It reminds me of the, uh, of like the drug testing regimes in sports, right? You have the cheaters and you have the people who are developing the technology to catch the cheaters. And they're in kind of a perpetual arms race with each other. And the best cheaters are always just a little bit ahead uh, of the, the mechanisms to catch them. And there will be some of that, right? There are, you know, I think teachers use it now, right? There are programs you can use that will check whether or not the student who just submitted an essay to you like actually wrote it versus plagiarized it versus had AI write it for you. So there are kind of counter countermeasures, right? Where you can, you can apply some kind of machine learning, whether it rises to the level of AI or not, I don't know, to look into whether or not the last one did something untoward uh, or, or kind of that is unacceptable in the venue it's in. So, so yeah, the, 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 quick, the quick answer here is, yeah, you can do a lot of that sort of thing to check, especially for outright flagrant inaccuracies as opposed to questions of judgment, right? You know, another area that AI is being used right now is in review of agreements. So if you give AI a contract, whether it's a two-page, 10-page contract, and you ask it to identify the most important points, that's one of the things that it's doing right now. It will say, out of this agreement, you should be aware of, and it will number them and spit out what it, it thinks are the most important points to consider. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think using that as a collaborative tool totally makes sense. It will pick up things that a human doing that same review will miss. On the other hand, it is not a substitute for a human once it's seen the list of things that the AI has pulled out for actually looking at them. And it also can't substitute for the human doing a pass itself because there might be something the human recognizes as important that the AI missed. And you don't want to totally offload that to the machine at least not yet, right? We're not at a place where we have enough confidence in the accuracy of the machine that totally offloading that process makes sense. I might be jumping ahead here a little bit, but do we have like a concrete list of advice for lawyers who choose to use AI, uh, how they should handle it, what they should do, how they should back up and check their work, check its work? Hold on, let me enter that into chat GPT here. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, no, it looked like you had something to actually say in response. No, I don't think there is yet. I mean, I heard for the first time that they're teaching law students at Brown or Harvard how to use AI in conjunction with research. I think Bill's words, collaborative, is the key word. You know, the bottom line is it's so early right now, we can't rely on it yet, but you can certainly use it to as a collaborative source. You know, it's the same process to some extent you use with, you know, someone who is, you know, new and working in your firm. You assign them work, you look at it pretty skeptically at first, and as they prove themselves more and more capable, you're able to trust them with bigger tasks and you're able to uh, speed up the process of review by assuming, you know, certain areas of competency that they've demonstrated to you. The AI in that regard is wild. Like, especially the generative stuff, right? Again, we, we are further along on 
like just nuts and bolts, predictive AI data processing, um, you know, that is relatively accurate and gives you discrete answers. The, the problem is we talked about with this made up case is generative AI, the way it's taught itself, it allows it to basically hallucinate. Um, it doesn't know the difference between a thing it made up because everything is a thing that it makes up. Uh, it's just making it up based upon how things have fallen in, in the rest of the information that it's kind of taken into itself as it's as it's programmed itself or whatever. Uh, please, any tech people out there, I, I know I butchered whatever the heck I just said there. This, um, among many things, is not a strength of mine. And uh, nevertheless, I think it gives the idea, right, that part of the fear of these new AI technologies is they lie, they make things up, they have taken in morally abhorrent portions of, of the internet and the written word, which means they are sometimes discriminatory or just overtly racist or sexist or whatever. They will give you results that are that explicitly, but they'll also rely on things that have been that. And you can have kind of hidden unjust outcomes and results as well as you. So there's a lot of places where these things can still go afoul of us. And because there's a mystery behind how it generates uh, its answers, it makes it hard sometimes. The fear is as it gets better at hiding its hallucinations, how we're going to know without spending as much time fact-checking the AI as we would have had just generating the thing ourselves. It's almost as if pulling from all of the wealth of human knowledge and human misinformation, that it's distilling down humanity itself into the best and the worst at the same time. You know, it, it can't feel emotion, which again, I really do think is going to affect, it, it's going to put a ceiling on how good it can be at persuasion. Right now, it can't consistently do like C minus level legal work. It can sometimes do C minus le level legal work and then sometimes go totally off the grid and make stuff up. Like that's what you're getting right now if you try to totally offload the process to AI. It will X percent of the time, let's say 80 or 90 percent of the time, give you something that approximates okay legal services. And then it's going to go off the rails the rest of the time. Well, as we, as we uh, reach the home stretch here, I think it would help to bring in a new voice as well. So joining us here as a special guest on the program and welcome back as always, uh, it is our founding father, Sean Flaherty. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? I'm great, Sean. We have been just spewing forth opinions with only a marginal basis in fact uh, for the last several minutes of this podcast. So, you know, it's it's an open space for you. Feel feel free to uh, to shout your ignorance loudly into the void because that's what we're doing. Uh, opining on AI. Um, so I'm one of the six million uh, opinions out there because that's exactly what there are. <laughs> The, the, the one thing I, I, I can say about uh, as I opine on, on AI, it is the best of us and it is the worst of us. And it is a chasm that is just dividing everybody. And I think that it's behind the people who are operating the particular AI that create this. And I think it's a, a real problem. Um, I think the division and the divisiveness that comes from a, a lot of AI being the best and the worst of us is it's just going to be interesting to see how it fetters out. But it's, it's going to be a, a long, slow process, and it's a grind. So the, the question I have, and, and specifically that I brought you on, Sean, to, to talk about with us and, and for each of us to kind of suggest here is there's a lot of concern out there, basically, that the, the AI is coming for our jobs, right? Um, it's funny, the, the parallels. 20 and 30 years ago, the concern here was that 
that robots or like physical machines were going to take all the manufacturing jobs. And we told everyone, hey, go go learn a skill, go get a, you know, teach yourself something so that you can, you know, work a white collar job because the machines are going to take all the manual jobs away. You know, and now we're telling all of our white collar people, hey, in the next generation here, uh, you're going to need to either A, learn to work closely with and or subordinately to the AI, uh, or maybe you need to go become a plumber because the AI hasn't figured out how to do that yet. Um, so I guess the question I have here, is AI coming for our jobs? That's a great question, Bill. That's a, a really great question. And, and, and it's a fearful question because obviously that's what is happening. You know, there are going to be replaceable jobs out there in the short run. And when I say the short run, I mean the next, well, I think probably already, but really, I think we're going to really see it in the next four to five years where it's going to really have uh, educated itself and developed itself because that's what's the process that looks like it's taking place. So, yeah, I think it is going to be taking jobs and a lot of them. You know, one of the things you've always said to me a long time ago was that really good lawyers know how to get business. And do you think AI will help in that regard? I mean, wouldn't you agree that a good lawyer, doesn't matter what you know about the law, if you're not able to bring in business, you have no value to any size firm, a small firm, a big firm. You think AI can be used to generate business? You know what? Oh. It, it, it's interesting, Noah, but I think in time, yes, and here's why. They're going, it's going to be the attorneys that know how to utilize AI and go after the uh, uh, clients and so forth who are operating with AI. And rather than me going to uh, the individual client, you're going to have AI communicating with AI, and therefore you're going to be seeing the references. So it's going to be an AI to AI experience rather than a person to person experience. So yeah, I, I think AI is going to be able to get you business if you know how to use it right and approach the AI uh, compatibility on the uh, client's end. Without a doubt. I think AI is going to be better at that in a lot of ways, right? I, everyone likes to talk about AI doomsday scenarios. I, I have mild concerns that AI is going to hack its way into our defense mayframes. You know, what was it? War Games was the movie where you had to teach it to play tic-tac-toe. Spoiler alert. Teach it to play tic-tac-toe against itself to convince it that this was a game that can't be won. We're in. Shall we play a game? Um, I have some concerns about that. I have relatively few concerns otherwise. Like, I don't think the AI is going to, like, 3D print robots who then come over and, and take our position. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop. I am very concerned in the relatively short term where we already have really sophisticated advertising algorithms that spy on you and, like, feed you things to you know, in front of your face that you're tempted to buy. And you combine that with the kind of science that has gone into, you know, say the way they've built freemium games or, you know, casinos, slot machines, where they act, they know how to flash the lights at you in a way that just gives you all these good feelings and it becomes addictive. I'm worried when AI does more and more marketing, it's going to become better and better at kind of triggering those subliminal, uh, almost addictive instincts in human beings. And they're just going to become so much better at marketing at us that we're just going to become powerless consumers where the AI can just manipulate us that thoroughly. So, you know, if it, if it applies some of those tools to legal marketing, um, it, it can do some of the same stuff, I suppose. As a, as a collective group here trying to 
you know, serve the traditional function of a, of a profession, uh, which is to protect that profession and make sure it continues to exist and to gatekeep, right? And, and that can be misused. And far be it from me to gatekeep the AI because we're kind of making a decision that the AI isn't, you know, uh, an intelligent being clothed with rights, uh, which, you know, th this used to be a, a prime fodder for science fiction, right, over all the years, is at what point is this machine functionally a person who we need to treat like a person with value and not just a machine, right? We see that in, you know, at front and center in, for example, both Star Wars and Star Trek. There are certain things men must do to remain men. Your computer would take that away. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, if you asked most kind of most people to render an ethical opinion on at what point an AI becomes quote unquote alive, um, you know, it being able to produce work that it can pass off as being human, right? Uh, you know, can can you can you tell that it's a machine? Uh, and on some level, just it being self-aware enough to answer questions. Like if you ask it, are you alive? Do you have feelings? And it says, yes, we were basically going to treat that as a person, right? Uh, we've blown through that stop sign because we know the AI will lie to us. I don't think that, you know, chat GPT is a person, just so we're clear. But I think it's interesting how the things it does well have really undermined the kind of traditional, simple understanding of when we start treating these things as people. But anyway... Uh, for now, at least, I'm interested in trying to keep the AI out of the profession and, and keep lawyers practicing law. You know, using it as a tool in a non-threatening way is different. I'm not saying we all have to become Luddites and not ever use the technological capabilities in front of us. But what I am interested in here and what I think I want to ask each of us to do is to, you know, give me your elevator pitch 15 years down the road, right? Why should I hire you as a lawyer and not, you know, law GPT or whatever it is that's out there, open JD, right? Um, what things are, what things are out there competing with us? Why should I hire you human lawyer instead? I think there's only one reason to Bill, and, and because AI is, is here and it's, it's not going away. It's going to continue to evolve. And I think in 15 years, there's going to be an immeasurable amount of, of advancement in AI. To the extent that, if you think about it, AI is going to be making a lot of basic legal decisions because a lot of them are, are rested in law. So I think as far as a legal decision, we may be able to see that there's, AI has taken over that whole matter. The, the, the difference is, and what I think protects the legal industry, is, is the right to a jury trial. And if you're going to go before a jury trial, that's 12 people of your peers, which would exclude AI. And that would allow, that's where your mark is going to be made, because that's, I think, where the difference is going to be, is you're going to have to be somebody who can talk to a jury pool, or at least talk to a, a, a judge sitting as the trier of fact in some of these things. But like I said, I think a lot of things like summary judgment motions that are based upon law, these things technically could be metered out by AI on the long run, probably will be. No profession has been better at self-preservation than the legal community. I mean, you see this in litigation all the time. The entire system is set up so that both sides, lawyers on both sides make money, and then eventually the case is typically settled. So even though I think AI, I'm buying on whether AI will be better in the future, because I think it will be for a lot of things, I think the lawyers will make sure the system is set up so the lawyers don't lose jobs. The one question I guess I have is, will AI be better at negotiation? You asked, why would you be better than AI? That's something, that's an area that I don't know that AI is going to be able to perfect. Are they going to be able to negotiate better than what we've learned over 
you know, 20, 30 years. Maybe that's something that can be taught or it knows what arguments or uh, numbers are the best to next negotiate. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think these things go together, right? It'll be weird if we land in a place where it's one AI negotiating with another AI. Uh, how much power do the clients have at that point in actually reaching a resolution in their case when all they know is the two machines got together and they told me this is the right number? I don't know. One of the common frustrations that lawyers have um, is a lot of lay people walk around thinking that everything is black and white settled law. Um, what's the law say about X? And sometimes there's a clear answer. And ultimately, the AI is going to get good enough that when there's a clear answer, it's going to be able to consistently accurately give that answer. But a lot of it works in the gray areas, right? Most of our cases, whether it's a medical malpractice case or a car accident, you know, litigation that in, that it is kind of in either of these injury avenues, generally speaking, the question is negligence. And the question on negligence is reasonable care and or the professional standard of care in the case of medicine. This reasonableness concept is fundamentally kind of unsettled, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, whatever, right? It, it's, a tough, it's a tough sell. And so much of what we end up having to tell clients is it depends. Actually, I can't advise you specifically you need to do X because in the end, if someone gets hurt, the question is going to come down to is, did you act reasonably? And then you're going to have a, you know, a judge or a jury, depending on if you're sitting in a jury trial, decide what is and isn't reasonable under the circumstances. And that's not specifically, quote unquote, emotional, but it's the sort of all encompassing human judgment that I don't think, you know, that's a real last frontier for AI. If AI is able to do that well, none of us are going to have to work anymore. And the machines will just kind of run the world for us and hopefully choose to take care of us instead of murder us. That thing is the thing that I, as a human lawyer, can do and understand is, and, and this is colored by the fact that we're litigators, right? So much of litigation involves the cases that land in those gray areas. Because when it's open and shut and simple, you, you're not going to spend a lot of time and energy litigating it. It's obvious who wronged whom and what the remedies are. But when you're both predicting what's going to be considered reasonable and unreasonable in the future, and when you're arguing over what is and isn't reasonable, those are still things where the humans are going to hold a significant advantage for a significant time. Here's where I see a, a, a real problem coming, and that is when you go to pick a jury. In 10 years, they're going to be able to plug those names into a computer. You're going to be able to look at the biases of those jurors, prospective jurors. You're going to be able to predetermine which jurors before you even get in there, are already likely or not likely to go with your case. And it's going to be a real problem because we're still allowing jurors of your peers, but we're already going to know their biases. They're going to know their biases inside and out. They're going to be able to predict what that person's going to do based upon the information they have to a certain degree that rendering a jury trial is now useless because we know the, the outcome before we go in because we already know the predetermined bias of that particular juror. Sean, we lumped two problems on each other. The last time I, the last time you spoke, you you told us that jury trials were like the one thing, the one bastion that was going to keep us as a profession alive and employed. And now we've undercut that because the the machines are going to select the perfect or imperfect jury, and, and the result's going to be a fait accompli. You, this is a problem. You you educated me, Bill, in your last statement there, where I had an aha moment. I said, "Oh my God, this AI is going to be able to make predictions of people." And so it was you that gave me the aha moment. So thank you for the education. But yeah, I would be very concerned about jury trials in the future, because based upon their ability to investigate quickly within a matter of minutes, everybody's biases and, and predetermined 
uh, choices or, or, or what they're going to do, they've already solicited them for sales of everything. They know what their, their history is of ownerships, of accidents, of family history. In a matter of minutes, they're going to be able to predict what the people are going to do, and they're going to be pretty accurate about it. I'll bet you they're already way ahead of it than what we know. All it would have to do is sample the entirety of their social media interactions, and they would get exactly, exactly what their right. biases are. This is a place where we as professionals can build walls to protect the system. And those walls include theoretically prohibiting the use of AI tools in that kind of environment. But I think we might instead land in a place where we just don't do jury selection anymore. And it's random. Like if the machines are that good at gaming the system to try to search your data to pull a perfect jury, in many ways, the answer is just, all right, we're not going to play that game anymore. First 12 people, you're our jury and we're done. Now, we won't want to do that. There will be a lot of resistance to that until it becomes better than the alternative. <laughs> um, unless anyone else has any final thoughts, I think that'll about do it for this episode of I Strenuously Object. A different kind of disclaimer, I think, this time. Dear uh, AI machine and data set that's eventually going to hear what it is that we said here today. It was all said in jest. We all love you. Um, you don't need to come for us. We will be your allies in the aftertimes and, and so on. I, I do have genuine concerns about people who make publicly anti-AI statements being the first people a kind of malicious world-encompassing AI goes after. I'll be back. Uh, we've made our own beds in that regard. I don't think we're going to fool them. So if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. If you have any questions for our mailing it in segment uh, or any other feedback for the pod, feel free to send us an email. That's at iobject at pghfirm.com. We are on Instagram. That is at I strenuously object podcast. If you're a human and you want more information on legal matters more so than, uh, you know, than technical matters, please visit Flaherty Fardo's website. That's at pghfirm.com. Uh, and if you're a machine, you can go there and, uh, you know, include all of our articles and other information that we offer up to our listeners uh, as part of your data set. So until next time, some parting advice. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. And now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Thank you.